Hello everyone and welcome to the School Safety Free Period. I'm Dr. Amy Klinger and I'm flying solo today. Normally I am here in the School Safety Free Period with my partner and colleague Amanda Klinger, um, but she's not available today so we're going it alone. Um, I'd like to welcome you. The uh, School Safety Free Period is an opportunity for us to have a bit more of an informal conversation about some of the things happening in the world of school safety and violence prevention. Um, so we take an opportunity to talk about things that are timely, to talk about things, sometimes things that are a little bit ridiculous perhaps, um, but today in the wake of the shooting that occurred recently in California, um, we have taken a little bit more serious turn and that coincides with the release of um, some information in a report from the United States Secret Service. So today we're going to do a little bit of an overview of that. Before we launch into it, we are the Educator School Safety Network. We are a national nonprofit. We work throughout the United States and Canada to provide school safety training, violence prevention training, um, technical assistance and research related to the areas of school safety and violence prevention. And what makes us unique is that we come from an educational perspective. Um, my background is as a career educator and administrator as well as my expertise in school safety. So <clears throat> what you're gonna hear today is a lot of conversation coming from that education viewpoint. So let's kind of launch into it. Um, oftentimes when Amanda is here, we do a bit more of a dialogue back and forth. Clearly today that's not going to happen, but instead um, we're going to talk about some of the findings and what some of those implications may mean, um, both longitudinally as we look at the previous um, Safe School Initiative study, but also more specifically into what's happening um, and what's going on right now. Um, as we get started with that, I, would, I do want to remind you that as the Educator School Safety Network, we do have research reports that we put out every year that look at violent threats and incidents in schools in the previous school year. So our report for 2018-2019 was just released in September, and a lot of the findings um, that we have are more specific to the threats and incidents but they really support a lot of what we're seeing here in the Safe School Initiative study. So this particular study that was released within the last week or so comes from the United States Secret Service National Threat Assessment Center. Um, and it is really, um, in many ways, a response to Parkland. So following the events of 2018, two things occurred coming from the U.S. Secret Service Threat Assessment Center. The first was the creation and the distribution of a guide enhancing school safety using a threat assessment model, an operational guide for preventing targeted school violence. And this was released um, in July of 18. So it's been about over a year. Um, if you have not downloaded it and looked at it, I strongly, strongly urge you to do so. Um, this is something, uh, you know, the drum that we have been beating for a very long time, saying that schools need to be engaged in threat assessment to prevent violence. Um, threat assessment where we identify individuals of concern, we assess how concerned we should be, and then we manage those individuals. And these are people who are at risk for violence against themselves or others in many forms, not just about active shooter. So the, the U.S. Secret Service has provided some really valuable free support 
for schools. So I really encourage you to do that. Um, we also on our website have a threat assessment toolkit and other threat assessment resources. Um, so while we're not going to talk specifically about threat assessment to management today, it is an ongoing conversation that I really encourage you to have. The second phase then was this particular research study that we're going to talk about right now. And this is really looking at 41 targeted attacks in K-12 schools that occurred from 2008 to 2017. Um, so both of the, um, the, all of those incidents, all 41 incidents took place in that time period. The previous um, school safety, the, the National Threat Assessment Center, their previous study um, was put out in 2002. So this one definitely gives us some updates and we're gonna spend a minute um, here in a few minutes contrasting the findings over time. What's different in 2019 when this was released versus in 2002 when the previous version was released. Um, so the, these 41 incidents all were targeted violence and it's important to note just like in the research that we do that it does not include incidents that were related to gang violence it doesn't include drug violence or other instances where there was a separate concern in the community that spilled over into the school these are 41 incidents where the school was the target and where the attack took place in the school so it's really important that we understand the parameters of that and they were, um, in the executive summary, they give um, some very specific key findings that, again, have been ongoing. So these are things that we know to be true from the research. We know them to be true based on the previous study as well as this study. And we, these are also collaborated by a lot of other research in the field um, as well. So I'm, I want to highlight those and then we'll unpack them a little bit um, individually. So what, some of the key findings, there is no profile of a student attacker, nor is there a profile for the type of school that has been targeted. This means that this type of targeted violence in schools is tragically an equal opportunity situation. Um, we have seen them in virtually all kinds of schools with all kinds of perpetrators. So there is no specific profile. We will talk in a minute though about some of the tendencies and some of the things where we tend to see them fall. The attackers usually had multiple motives, the most common involving a grievance. Now we know that there's a lot of common wisdom that says that every school shooting is caused by bullying. I think this report and many others are really sort of raising the notion that it is not necessarily that there was actual bullying taking place, but what we're finding is typically there is some sort of a perception or a feeling on the part of the attacker that they are somehow aggrieved, that they are have somehow been treated in unjustly, that there is a problem. Um, and so typically these grievances were with classmates, but other times it was with other significant people within the, the, the school. Um, there were other motives that were typically sub motives. So there was typically always this primary motive, which tended to be a grievance, whether it was real or perceived. Um, and then some of the sub motives tend to be the desire to kill, the desire to commit suicide, seeking fame, seeking notoriety, um, all those sorts of things. But we know that the, the seed, if you will, is oftentimes that, that perception of a grievance. Most of the attackers used firearms and firearms were the most often acquired from the home. 
I mean, we're going to talk in a minute about some of the changes in that regard. But again, we are talking about um, firearms being used and most often that they were taken directly from the home. And again, this is not, and we say this over and over in our trainings, we do not have a position on gun control or gun rights. We are just saying what is. This is what is what is the case, um, regardless of what anyone's political or philosophical stance is on this. This is just, it is what it is. Most of the attackers had experienced some sort of psychological, behavioral, or developmental symptoms. So they had um, some sort of mental health issues, typically psychological, sort of such as suicidal ideation, depression, that sort of thing. They or they were behavioral, um, defiance, misconduct, oppositional sort of things, or they were neurological, um, some sort of cognitive deficit or neuro neurological dysfunction. But almost all of the attackers had some sort of difficulty in the area of either psychologically, behaviorally, or developmentally. Half of the attackers had interests in violent topics. Um, and again, we see that in our work a, a significant percent of the time with specific topics like um, Columbine especially is one. Um, but also a general interest in violence and in violent topics. Um, and so that's about half of the attackers. All of the attackers experienced some sort of social stressor that had to do with relationships, especially with their peers and or romantic partners. So all of these attackers had some sort of area of social stress in their life where there, there were relationships that were dysfunctional, relationships that weren't working, relationships that were severed, relationships that were in conflict. Um, so the relationship piece was really significant in all of the attackers. <clears throat> in addition, nearly every attacker had some sort of negative home life factor. It could have been divorce, separation, there was drug abuse, domestic violence, criminal charges, some sort of other sort of abuse. Um, and and it's so not to say that any of these things are necessarily predictors for a given individual. Again, we just need to look at in these 41 cases, all of these attackers experienced some of these things or had negative home life factors that contributed to it. Most of the attackers were victims of bullying, however. And so I said earlier that when we're talking about the grievance piece, um, and that's not to negate the effect of bullying, because clearly it was um, an issue, or at least the perception of bullying. Um, and most of the attackers had a history of some sort of disciplinary problems in school, and a good portion of them had prior contact with law enforcement. And all of the attackers, all of them exhibited concerning behaviors that they were they were exhibiting or engaging in behaviors that caused concern, not necessarily saying things that posed a threat, but they were engaging in behaviors that posed a threat. So when we look at the totality of this sort of, I mean, that's kind of the overarching notion that when in these 41 attackers, and if we extrapolate that out, if we're looking at trying to protect, to, uh, protect or prevent potential attackers, um, we can't profile them, so we know that there isn't a profile of it's going to be this kid or that kid that looks in this way. But we know that there's going to be issues with grievances. We know that oftentimes the firearms will be a factor and they're going to get them from home. 
and again, that, that speaks to the, the wellness check or the idea of inquiring about the accessibility of firearms in the home for certain kids in certain circumstances. Uh, we know that there's going to be psychological, behavioral, developmental problems. <clears throat> Oftentimes that interest in violent topics, the social stressors, negative home life, um, victims, victimization in terms of bullying, a history of school discipline problems, and exhibiting behaviors of concern. And I think this kind of goes to that overarching notion of we know what we're looking for. We have to have systems in place to identify those things and to identify those individuals that meet all these criteria. And that goes back to this idea of threat assessment management. So I know that we keep talking about that and talking about it, but these are the things that we can identify, that we can look for, and that we can remediate when we do threat assessment management. Those are the keys. That's what we're looking for. So let's take a, a brief minute to kind of look at some of the, the specifics of it now. So they broke it down in the report and, and you know, I encourage you to go download the report and, and read it for yourself. But they broke it down into several areas that they went into a little bit more detail. So I want to kind of talk about that. Um, they, first, they started out about the, the location of the attack. So 95% of the attacks took place in public schools. 73% of them were in high schools. So we know that high schools are far more at risk than other buildings for these kind of attacks. A middle school, 22%, and elementary school was a very small percentage at 2%. <clears throat> there was really nothing significant about the actual communities. Um, the suburbs, 34%, cities, 27%, rural, 24%. So there is no statistically significant thing that says, oh, it's going to take place in this area. Again, it's that sort of equal opportunity tragedy. Um, school size didn't really seem to make a whole lot of a difference either. Um, we had a distribution of attacks of 22% were in very large schools with more than 1,500 kids, but 22% were in very small schools with less than 500. So I think one of the takeaways when we look at some of this non-conclusive not significant stuff. Even in terms of class size, pupil ratio, none of those things seem to be significant factors. And I think the takeaway there is every school needs to be concerned. Every school needs to be able to um, prepare for an active shooter. But more importantly, every school needs the threat assessment mechanism in place to be able to identify because we know what we're looking for. We need to have that mechanism in place to be able to identify individuals of concern. And that's the piece that most often is missing. And if you listen to us at all in any of our webinars or podcasts, we're constantly talking about that. We have this overemphasis on active shooter events in terms of preparation and, and training for what are pretty statistically rare events, less than 6% of all violent events that we tracked last year were active shooter events. But yet... Clearly, they're horrific, and we need to do something about them. And so it's very frustrating that we see a lot of schools who are very, very centered and focused on the response piece of what do we do after this tragedy has happened, as opposed to significantly fewer schools who are focused on the prevention piece. And that kind of takes us to the this other part of this section <clears throat> where the, the Secret Service is really explicit 
about the idea of physical security is not the only thing. And I'll read you exactly um, a quote from them. Either of the approaches alone would not constitute the most effective means of preventing an attack. So if all you have is active shooter response, it is not the most effective way to prevent an attack. If all you have is threat assessment, but we have no response protocols, that is equally problematic. So, you know, the Secret Service has been explicit about this since before 2002, of we must have both means. We must be able to respond, but we also must be able to prevent. Um, and that's really critical. I mean, I think in, in some of the, in the report here, they talk about it, that in some cases, at the time of the attack, half of the schools, almost half, 46%, had one or more full-time SROs on scene, and they still had an attack. So 46% of them <coughs> had multiple law enforcement people on scene and still had an attack occurred. So it is not enough to just put in physical security. It is not enough to just put in law enforcement. Um, in terms of physical security, 68% um, of the schools that were attacked had a lockdown procedure. 34% had security cameras. 17% had alert systems. Um, so we've got all kinds of it. And 15% had private security guards. So we had lots of physical security measures that, took that were present in schools that were still attacked. And so that is not to, um, to demean or to criticize those schools. It's to say that alone is not going to be enough. So I think that's a really big takeaway. Um, they also talked a little bit about weapons used. And that's one of the ones I want to touch on for a minute because that's one of the things that sort of struck me. They talked about um, that most often it was firearms, but it was at a rate of 61%. In the 2002 study, um, the rate of the, the, the rate of firearm use was 97%. So in 2002, 97% of the attacks used a gun. In 2019, in that study up through 2017, 61% used a gun. So we had this statistically significant drop in the use of firearms with 39% of the instances using a knife where Prior to that, it was a very small percentage. So that, I think that's very interesting um, that we've had this uptick in knives being used. Now, oftentimes knives were brought in as a secondary weapon, but it's very interesting to see that we've got 39% where bladed weapons were the primary weapon that they were going to be using. So that's, I, I don't know exactly what to make of that, other than that is a, a pretty significant difference from what we saw in the 2002 study. Um, so one of the takeaways there, I think, is that while we clearly need to be concerned about guns in school, we need to be equally concerned about other weapons that are coming into our school. Um, and, and oftentimes, bladed weapons like knives um, are not treated quite as, as much of a serious threat. Um, oftentimes kids don't disclose those because they don't see them as being a big problem. So I think that's an uptick that we're seeing where kids are, are realizing that it's problematic to bring a gun into school, but I can bring a knife into school maybe and no one's saying anything. So I think that's one to think about. The other one, the other part in this section is talking about the timing and the location. So before school was 24% of the incidents. Um, during the morning was 51%. 
Um, so in total, before lunch, if you will, 75% uh, of all of these events took place either before school or in the morning. Um, and that really speaks to the need for supervision at the beginning of the day, um, because that's when a lot of these are also prevented. When someone is available, is getting disclosures, someone is paying attention, someone is looking at what's happening, interacting with kids, seeing what they're bringing in. If 75% of the time the event is occurring before lunch, that is a time when we need to be much more vigilant. So I think that's one of the big takeaways. The other one that I thought was kind of interesting was they looked at when the attacks took place in terms of attendance. And they found that 41% of the attacks took place within the first week after coming back from a break in attendance. Now the break in attendance could be a you know Christmas break, spring break, whatever break, but it also was in coming back after a break in attendance by the attacker. So they were suspended, they were somehow not allowed to come to school. So that's a really important takeaway in terms of violence prevention that we need to, schools need to do a better job of inducting or reintegrating kids back into the school after a, a forced break in attendance. Um, oftentimes we'll put a kid out for 10 days and they come back on the 11th day and nothing is any different. And we don't even remember that they're coming back or we haven't done anything different. So it's really important um, for us to, and they, and they use the term, facilitate positive student engagement following discipline. Um, and especially within the first week that the student returns to school. And so you can see what, you know, if, if you put together the totality of what we talked about. So you have a kid who has all of these, these issues that we've discussed, and he comes back to school after um, some sort of problem where he's been suspended for 10 days. Let's say it's a threat or he made, you know, did something inappropriate. Um, he comes back to school and within a day or two, nothing has changed and he's being treated in the same way or he perceives he is. Um, there is no difference in the level of support and intervention. It's same old, same old, same old, and that sense of grievance grows. And so you have this pretty um, significant rate of attacks taking place within that break of the first week after that break of attendance. So I think that's a big takeaway. Um, in terms of the duration, 83% of them were five minutes or less. Um, we know that those the shootings, attacks, or whatever the attack, the nature of the attack is, they are typically pretty um, short-lived. Two-thirds, 68% um, lasted for two minutes or less, and almost half were less than a minute. There is not a ton of time to respond. And I think the takeaway here is that we can have these elaborate drills of how are we gonna stay and we're gonna barricade in our classroom for hours and we're gonna do this and we're gonna do that and we act like we have all of this time to respond. Well, when you're talking about almost half being less than a minute and the vast majority, 83%, lasting five minutes or less, people need to know what to do in the moment. There is not going to be an elaborate command structure of announcements and all kinds of things. So we need for people to, to be empowered to make decisions about what to do, not just intimidated and being fearful of that. Um, the location of the attacks, 88% of the time, the attack, because they are so short, starts and ends in exactly the same location. Um, most often it was the classroom. Um, and the, the second most often was immediately outside the school, such as at arrival, dismissal sort of thing. 
Um, so we don't typically have um, an active attack event where the person is on the move because it is so quick and, and happens so fast. Um, they go on to talk a little bit about response time and all those sorts of things, but I don't want to get too far into the law enforcement side of thing, other than to mention something that they find to be very significant, as do we. And that's looking about the resolution of the attack. Um, the half of the attacks um, ended without any external intervention, and that's different than we have seen in the past. So a lot of them ended without anyone intervening. They just were done and the person fled or committed suicide or whatever they did. But when there was intervention, 22% of the time it was non-law enforcement and 15% of the time it was law enforcement. And that is very different than the 2002. Um, it's somewhat different than the 2002 study where you had very few, a very low percentage of um, attackers who were giving up at the end. It was almost always either aggressive intervention or suicide um, where they ended violently. So I think that is an interesting development where we are not seeing them end as violently um, and we're seeing the, the resolutions being a little more diverse. But the Secret Service felt strongly enough uh, to put this in bold. No attacks were ended by outside law enforcement agencies responding to the scene from off campus. So in other words, if your plan is the law enforcement guy, the cops are going to come on campus and take care of this for me, that's not going to happen. Not one of those 41 events ended because an outside law enforcement agency responded and took care of it. Law enforcement in every one of these cases came after the attack was over. And that's not a knock on law enforcement. We understand that when you have an event that is lasting three minutes or less or two minutes or less, you know, you're not going to get that sort of um, response time. Um, so I think it is very critical, again, for us to understand there has to be a perspective on this that is non-law enforcement because law enforcement is not the beginning and the end and solution of this particular issue of attacks. So I think that's a really big takeaway, which we've known for some time, but I think it's just sort of reinforced. So now let's talk um, real briefly. Let's let's sort of switch over and talk a little bit about the nature of the attackers themselves um, in terms of gender and race. Um, in this new study, the 2019 study, 83% um, of the attackers were male. That is a significant difference from the 2002 study where, where we had a uh, all of them were male. So in 2002, 100% of the attackers were male. Now we are down to 83% being male. So that's very different. Um, that is a statistically significant difference that requires us to shift our thinking when we are identifying individuals of concern that yes, while many of them are going to be male, we cannot overlook the needs and the potential threats of females because that we see that trend occurring. Um, so I think, <coughs> excuse me, that's an important piece. The number of the percent who are current students has not changed a whole lot. It was 95% in 2002 and it's 90% now. So that hasn't changed a whole heck of a lot. <coughs> excuse me. But the, um, the gender piece certainly has. 
most of the time they were current students. We, we've seen that to be consistent as well. We talked a little bit about the motives and typically, again, there were those multiple motives. The grievance idea is a significant one and I think that's something that we need to, to pay attention to as well. So if you look in the totality of the 2002 um, study versus the 2019 study, there's a couple of things that I've tried to highlight that are kind of significant. Um, and there's two, a couple others that I want to just point out as well. Um, in terms of having a past history of violence, in the 2002 study, it was about 31% had a past history of doing something violent. <coughs> Excuse me. In the 2019, we're at 51%. So we have 51% of our attackers had a history of violence already. In the 2002 study, 27% of attackers had been suspended at least once. Now it has climbed in the 2019 study to 51%. So more than half of the attackers have been suspended at least once, which really speaks again to the need to take a look at what are we doing in our protocols in terms of supports and interventions for kids who are suspended and who are coming back after that suspension. So I think that really speaks to the need to do that and to really give um, some thought and uh, making that a strategic decisions about how are we bringing that person back into the school. And then finally, um, one of the changes that I, I, again, not quite sure that I can tell you exactly why that would be, um, is the 2002 study, we had the rate of people that knew about these behaviors of concern and were concerned. Uh, an adult was 7% um, is now 14%. So it's doubled the rate of adults who are aware or see, know, knew about the concerns or about the potential for an attack has doubled from 7% to 14%. So I think that's um, a significant one as well. So let's try to put this in a little bit of perspective in terms of, so what does that all mean? I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that we, <coughs> 41 attacks in this particular study and 37 in the previous study, not a very big sample size. So it is a statistically rare event, thankfully, um, that does not present us with a significant, you know, it's not like we have thousands and thousands of attackers to study. So all of the, the findings, while they can help us to inform um, our decisions and inform what we're doing and the practices that we're doing, it's not conclusive. And we can see that it is evolving. It changes over time. Um, and our research supports that as well. Um, but it also means that we have to be open to the fact that there may be other elements or other things that contribute to this that we, you know, for which we have to be aware as well. So it's kind of an interesting dilemma in the sense that you have a small sample size and you can't extrapolate that out too far to say, okay, this is true for everybody in every situation. But on the other hand, we have to look at the fact that so much of this is really clear that there are a lot of things that have consistently been occurring since the, the, the since Columbine in terms of us studying that and looking at this and we're seeing the same things to be true over and over and over which kind of begs the question that we have you know the discussions that we have a lot in some of our professional development what are we waiting for we know what these factors are we know these are factors of concern whether it is for an attacker that's going to perpetrate a shooting or an individual who is going to commit suicide. 
or some other sort of self-harm or some other violent aggressive behavior. So we know what we're looking for. We need to instead do a better job of formalizing the systems by which we provide appropriate support and intervention and by the systems by which we identify these individuals rather than just saying we're going to spend all of our time and energy preparing for this event and not trying to spend time and energy preventing it. So I think that's one of the big takeaways. I think it's a really good idea um, for anyone um, who cares about this topic or is interested in violence in schools to really download this report and take a look at all of the different components of it. Um, one of the things that I do like about the way that they put the report together this time is they also created and provided um, resources on how to create a targeted violence prevention plan. So it's not just admiring the problem, it's also provides in the appendix a variety of different things that schools can engage in. And I, I especially like it because so much of it is what we talk about. Um, but also talking, you know, providing some guidance and support in terms of what can we do? What are some things we should be looking at? And when we looked at those initial findings in the beginning, clearly we can see there is a role for behavioral intervention, mental health support. We see that there is a role for some of the things that we do administratively in terms of discipline, in terms of wellness checks, the way that we bring kids back in after they've been suspended or had discipline. Um, the, the questions that we ask, in, whether it's in our threat assessment management or the questions that we ask in our intervention or response to intervention or whatever it might be, PBIS, whatever those things are, it, it is important to ask the right questions as well in terms of is there access to, the fi to firearms? Is there an interest, uh, an intense, passionate interest in these violent events? Is there a discussion of grievances and bullying and relationship-based concerns? What are the social stressors that are occurring outside of school that are going to find their way into school? Has there been um, a history of law enforcement interaction? Um, has there been a history of unstable or instability in the home? So there's a whole bunch of things that we know are factors that, it's, that allow us to really be able to construct a mechanism to both respond to these events as well, and more importantly, as well as preventing them. So that gives you a little bit of an overview of the secret study or secret service um, study. I hope you have an opportunity to download it and take a look at it. We have it. We'll have it available on our website as well, as well as the threat assessment documents. Um, and as we always say in all of our our podcasts and our webinars and professional development, it seems overwhelming. But it is not overwhelming if we do it a little bit at a time. And really, it's, it's about getting started. It's about building your professional capacity. Anything that we can do, if the only takeaway from this podcast is that we need to have more supervision present in the morning, great. That's a great takeaway, and it will make your school safer. Or if the only takeaway is we are going to look at how we bring kids back to school after a suspension and we're going to see how to provide support and intervention to that, if you, if you endeavor to do that, your school will be safer. So it's not that we have to do everything simultaneously, but I think it's really important for us to look at what we know to be true 
these are all based on actual attacks. These are not conjecture or theories. If we take what we know to be true and we respond to it and we act upon it, we will make our schools safer. So I appreciate your willingness to hang out with me just all by myself. It's a lot more fun when Amanda is here and she'll be here next week for our next uh, live stream and podcast. I do remind you to check out our website, www.eschoolsafety.org. You will find a host of free resources, including webinars. Um, we just did our third webinar last week. Um, we have monthly webinars for this entire school year. We have podcasts um, like this that you can download um, in whatever format you would choose, however you like to get your podcasts. I also encourage you to connect with us by signing up for our newsletter. Uh, we try to keep you current on what's happening in school safety. And we are also very active in social media and we encourage you to get in touch with us there. So head on over to the website and browse around and see what sort of things might be helpful. As always, we do training and consultation and technical assistance. So please let us know how we can help. In the meantime, um, take a look at the resources and the Secret Service report. And next time we will take on another issue in school safety. So thank you very much for joining us.